Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, how you doing? Welcome. It's uh, Thursday, the 20th of, of February. Uh, well, I said the debate was going to be worth watching. It certainly was more lively than any of the past any of the past uh, debates, but um, I don't think it was helpful. I mean, it was helpful in um, in unmasking uh, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, it turns out that uh, when you star in glossy campaign ads, uh, you know, that's one thing. <laughs> when you're stuck uh, on a stage with, um, with others who are coming at you, that's another. And man, he bombed. He bombed. He was awful. If people, if anybody still thinks that's the guy who's going to beat Trump, you're out of your mind. He's got the personality of a cold fish. There's no humor. Um, he's just, he was awful. <laughs> he was beyond awful. He couldn't even, uh, he couldn't even answer questions that uh, you would think he would know were coming. Um, the stop and frisk and and uh, not non-disclosure agreements with women who have uh, accused him of uh, of uh, creating a sexual hostile environment. I mean, oh, he was horrible. <laughs> and and yet he's number two in national polls by virtue of the glossy ads. Anybody who watched that, uh, who would still think that Mike Bloomberg is the guy to represent us in uh, the next election, the most important presidential election in my lifetime, perhaps in the country's history, uh, come on. <laughs> Trump would eat him alive. As Gail Collins put it, well, I guess money can't buy everything, because he was horrible. If anybody thinks otherwise, let me hear it. But I truly was stunned by how bad he was. The obvious winner of the debate, well, in some respects, was Bernie Sanders, simply because even though he is the, without a doubt, front runner, nobody took him on. I mean, Buttigieg a little bit, but it's so bizarre. They were too busy beating up on Bloomberg, uh, which didn't seem like a fair fight after a while. Uh, without a doubt, the person who won the debate in terms of performance uh, was Elizabeth Warren. That is one smart person, and not only that, she's tough. And she eviscerated Bloomberg. Well, I have never seen anybody destroy somebody that quickly. 
And as I was looking at them all on the stage, I was then thinking, God, you know, Warren, who can beat him? Last night it looked like Warren's the best choice. But, you know, she ain't polling well, and so she doesn't have enough money in her war chest, so I don't know. I don't know. It was very depressing. I eventually tuned it out, even though, as I said, it was more entertaining. And I credit um, uh, the moderators, <coughs> especially Lester Holt, who just told him, you know, take each other on, we'll, um, <coughs> they step back. And, um, and what ensued was, um, I thought, more interesting. Unfortunately, um, if you were just tuning in and you saw that this was what it was, a debate by people uh, who want to uh, be the President of the United States, you would be um, surprised that at the moment the person who holds that position is as frightening and incompetent and ugly, evil creep imaginable who's destroying this country, our standing in the world, I mean, the gravest danger to this nation since the Civil War, since Adolf Hitler. One cannot overstate the damage that Donald Trump has already done and that given four years, what he will do. And I don't know that I heard his name. All we want to know is which one of you guys is going to take that monster down. And they're too busy elbowing each other and jockeying around. I, I, it, they need to stop it and tell us, show us, how they're going to take Trump down. I do admit they had, to, they had to bludgeon Bloomberg last night, uh, but essentially um, Elizabeth Warren did that, uh, you know, in five minutes. <laughs> Every time the camera was on him, he just looked like this... Uh, he looked like a pissed-off billionaire who's not used to having to to argue anything with anybody. <coughs> so, I thought it was more entertaining than the other debates, but ultimately uh, unhelpful, except for the unmasking of, uh, of Bloomberg as the guy who supposedly people think can beat Donald Trump. That stiff on the stage, are you kidding me?
and Bernie. Oh, God, if it's going to be Bernie, I really do think we're toast. I mean, he'll have my vote. I'll work for him. But with Bernie at the head of the ticket, I think we lose all of those. We even lose a lot of seats in the House. We don't pick up the Senate. I, I firmly believe it. And we're going to get Trump. And this great American experiment that began in 1776 will be over, done, finished, dismantled. don't mean to be thoroughly depressing. Let me tell you something. Uh, you know, I'm just going to, let's get off it um, for a while <laughs> because I'm inevitably going to return to it. Um, like to just uh, heads up about something going on at the August Wilson Center because I, I aim to get s some of you guys out the door in these times. Nothing is better than going somewhere where you take in art, whether it be music or dance or photography or a lecture or whatever. And um, right now um, at the gallery, uh, for those of you who uh, love photography, there is a, um, a show called Vanishing Black Bars and Lounges. And uh, this is a New Orleans-based uh, photographer um, who has documented these places that are gone or going, um, where African Americans were able to gather safely where they were able to socialize, entertain, uh, find entertainment, uh, get together in a communal way where community activism and uh, things happened. So I just wanted to point out that uh, coming up a week from Sunday, March 1st, the photographer will be here and uh, from 2 to 4. And it would be a good time to be able to um, hear the history of these places that uh, the photographer has uh, has what's the what's the word for taking pictures of documented <laughs> okay just wanted to say that and I hope you also saw. Um, this was, I read it in the New York Times, and it turns out, of course, it was it was as it of course would have been covered in the local paper as well. But I first saw it in the New York Times, and that is that the August Wilson African American Cultural Center in Pittsburgh <coughs> is intending to open uh, what is called August Wilson a Writer's Landscape. And uh, this is going to be a show that will be there 
in perpetuity uh, because obviously it is about the man, the extraordinary American playwright whose whose name uh, the the museum uh, carries, and uh, it's going to be a permanent show. Uh, with showing um, the things he had around him when he wrote his desk, um, and it's going to go into his um, his manuscripts and record collections, and um, and then deal with each of the ten plays in his uh, you know American uh, century uh, cycle. It sounds wonderful and. Um, the New York Times thought it uh, big enough to stick it at the top of, of their uh, rundown of notable uh, happenings uh, in the world of art. Uh, props, costumes from, uh, from some of his productions, um, information about the real neighborhood in which he lived that gave rise to uh, his plays and his characters, and uh, so all of that, and that'll be opening in the fall and will be amazing. Just want to, it is such a wonderful place. And if you have not taken advantage of the multitude of stuff that comes there, uh, you're missing something wonderful. Milton writes, nothing like watching the house burn down around the Democrats as they argue about where to put the living room coffee table. It's exactly what I thought. I couldn't bear it after a while. Not one of them, it, yeah, Milton, uh, you saw the same thing I saw. Not one of them mentioned the deconstruction of the Justice Department or how they would fix it if they win. No, not one of them mentioned the least qualified person in the history, in the history of uh, our national intelligence uh, being appointed to, I want to talk about that a little bit later. That was just yesterday's horror uh, emanating from the White House. Uh, Trump's new acting director of national intelligence who has no history at all in intelligence or administering an agency. But he loves Trump, and that's the only thing that matters. Milt says no one took the fight to Trump at all. Not at all! I'm telling you, was his name mentioned? Was it mentioned? It's like had these candidates been generals in World War II they would have chosen to be stationed in the Arctic Circle and miss the entire conflict. <laughs> ah. I'm laughing to keep from crying. Milton ends his email with, I'm quite discouraged. Me too. Me too. Okay, uh, I just want to, in case you missed it, uh, yeah, so Trump um, has, uh, you know, you don't even get to know these people. Uh, how many people have held this position in the last year? 
I'm serious. Uh, we never got to know the last one. What was his name? McCarthy? Oh, McGuire. Uh, who was clearly a, 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 a you know a Trumpista and 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 seemed to do a fine job. He was the acting head of uh, intelligence. This is the, this is the person who oversees all seventeen spy agencies. Can you name seventeen <laughs> spy agencies? CIA. What are the 17 spy agencies? All right, I'm just saying. This person would oversee all of them. Obviously, to have somebody uh, oversee it, you would want somebody with a history in um, intelligence. <laughs> and instead, he chose this guy who was the ambassador to Germany, who so enraged the Germans that they wanted him recalled. I mean, because he was like a Trump person. He was so undiplomatic, breaking all the rules, you know, breaking the crockery as well. His name is Richard Grinnell, and he will do as he is told uh, for these spy agencies where the morale is uh, at rock bottom. This ain't gonna help. You'll recall the spy uh, agencies were uh, given the back of Trump's hand while he stood next to Vladimir effing Putin. So, um, yeah. This is the funniest line I saw in the New York Times piece on it. Um, intelligence professionals reacted with surprise. Well, um, how could they be surprised? We've lived with this dangerous creep for three and a half years now. And how could people who are supposedly intelligence professionals be surprised that Donald Trump put an even less qualified person in than the last unqualified person? Oh, and also, he's letting him keep his job as ambassador to Germany. What? Oh, yeah, you know, because when you oversee 17 spy agencies with no past experience, there's no problem with also holding down an ambassadorship in Germany. The one thing that's unusual... And by the way, it requires, of course, there's no Senate confirmation. There will be no Senate confirmation. It never goes there. These are all acting people. This is how Trump likes it. He bypasses all the checks and balances, supposedly, we thought, were, you know, the norm and were required. Nah, not really. 
The surprising thing about this is the guy's gay and openly gay. I'm just saying. You always think, what, gays are going to be, uh, yeah, Democrats? <laughs> God, there you go. See, gays are just like heterosexuals. Some are Republican, Trump-ass-kissing sons of bitches. Excuse me, that was a little strong. Okay. Um, God almighty. All right, uh, what else? Oh, also Trump. Hey, who's... Who do you think's telling the truth with this one? When uh, Trump handed out his pardons uh, the other day, and you see who gets pardoned, uh, you know, uh, the people that weren't like names we knew that were pardoned also got pardoned because they had a connection to Trump that you can trace back to Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I kid you not. Oh, listen. You gotta know somebody. Simple as that. So Julian Assange, remember him, who is desperately fighting to uh, keep from being brought back to the United States through extradition, Uh, his attorneys uh, said yesterday, I guess they had floated this before, but this got put in a court uh, in London on, on, on Wednesday. Uh, Assange's legal team <laughs> said that in 2017, Trump had dangled a pardon in front of Assange if he'd do him a favor. It was, yes, a quid pro quo. And Trump, through the loathsome former California congressman Dana Rohrabacher, who is often called, I believe, the, uh, you know, Putin's main man in the Congress, uh, Rohrabacher went over to talk to Assange and dangle this offer. If if you say that it was not the Russians, it was not the Russians who hacked Clinton's and the Democrats' uh, emails, not the Russians who interfered in any way, we will get you out. Now, here's the thing. The White House has said never happened. They deny it totally. And what I... Here's the thing. Who would you believe with these two, given these two? You believe Julian Assange, who is a serpent? You believe Donald Trump? Well, we know we don't believe Donald Trump. But do I believe Julian Assange? It sounds right that Rohrabacher would have been tasked 
uh, with that, that because he carries water for the Russians, as does Donald Trump, and that that would be the quid pro quo because Assange would be in a position to say, I never gave, WikiLeaks never gave the Russians any material. I don't know. You figure it out. So Sanders uh, won't uh, give us uh, his full medical records. And, and here's what I think about that. Um, this also shows how Donald Trump has lowered the standards that used to be considered, you know, just the rule. Donald Trump would not release his tax returns. Donald Trump doesn't really have, you know, we don't know about his health, I can assure you. Um, and because he got away with all that, you can see that um, Sanders is taking a page from his book. Sure, he promised, I believe last, right, when was it, after he got out of the hospital in the fall? Sanders uh, quite clearly <laughs> said that he would um, <clears throat> release his full medical records by the end of the year. Uh, February is uh, almost over. There have been no medical records, and when directly asked about it now, he just says, no, I don't think so. That is showing that Bernie Sanders has learned from Donald Trump. Just say no. Just say no. Let people scream and yell and just say no. Unbelievable. Alrighty. Um, what else do I have here? It's just, <laughs> sorry. Uh, the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg has um, has filed for bankruptcy. I'm looking at the uh, oh Jesus, excuse me, the page three uh, rather large story in the Wall Street Journal today, which. Um, which is right next to a, a lovely uh, ad for Trump International Hotel and Tower. Jesus. I'm surprised he has to advertise. He gets everything for free, so why would he even take out an ad? Oh, it says designed for visionaries. Never settle. So, uh, there are how many dioceses in uh, Pennsylvania? I think there are seven. Um, anyway, this one now has uh, is going to seek protection 
So it's interesting that can, you can do that. Okay, so you're accused of crimes. People who you've harmed come and they're asking for compensation, relief from their pain and suffering. And you can avoid all that by simply declaring bankruptcy. I mean, we see it in the private sector, now we see it with the church, and we see it with the Boy Scouts. The story about the Boy Scouts hiding behind bankruptcy is right under the story about the Harrisburg uh, Diocese. If they were not able to do this, the church would go down in in a lot of states because states are uh, other states other than Pennsylvania are opening investigations um, into these dioceses. Um, they're they're changing the statutes of limitation uh, laws to make it easier for people who uh, were abused to um, come forward now uh, and sue. Uh, Harrisburg Diocese has at least 200 creditors um, and it had a program. They put money aside to compensate these people. Had al they'd already paid out 12 million but they just keep coming. The Catholic Church is losing members and collections have been shrinking for years. And um, it says here that Harrisburg is the 21st Catholic diocese in the, in the United States to file for bankruptcy. Uh, since 2004 when these sexual abuse lawsuits against the church began to come in fast and furiously. And so this is just a strategy that is available to them and to the Boy Scouts to um, stay alive and to avoid uh, paying, you know, recompense for their sins. <laughs> Uh, what else we got here? Oh, this um, I wanted to share with you. I've carried this around for a few days. You know, the uh, White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner, which uh, has had better days. Um, and last year they got so, uh, they, were, they had been so scalded by uh, criticism of their, um, the, go around, I guess it, that would be in 2018 when uh, Michelle Wolf was the um, was the comedian that uh, did the opening monologue. Um, so they had an, I forget what historian, they had a historian come and talk about the uh, First Amendment. <laughs> uh, oh, the guy who wrote Hamilton. I mean the original, not Lin-Manuel Miranda, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ron Chernow. So, turns out this year, they're going back to having a comedian. And you can bet Trump won't show 
again. Uh, but it's going to be Keenan Thompson, who uh, is... I didn't realize that he has been on Saturday Night Live longer than any other person. He's been on for 17 years? Anyway, he's going to be the MC, And uh, that's coming up uh, sometime in, in, in April. Trump is the only president who has, ref again, because he just doesn't do what everybody else ever did, which is another th reason his base loves him so much. And, uh, you know, some people will say that Trump decided to run for president when he did attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner when Barack Obama was the president, and Obama took a swipe at him where if you look at uh, the video, Trump, you could see steam coming out of his ears. He was enraged. Just saying. Ronald Reagan, to get the history right here, was the first person who did not attend um, uh, one of these uh, dinners. Um, but he had a really good excuse. John Hinckley had just tried to kill him. <laughs> it was 1981, and he was sort of laid up in the hospital. But even then, Ronald Reagan called in to the White House Correspondents' Dinner from his hospital bed. <sighs> okay. The Europeans got together uh, earlier in the week uh, for some kind of a, you know, European security conference. Oh, wait, I have an email from Mr. Chun Ling Ki. It's an urgent proposal. Hey, hey, gotta see what this is. Wow, he's a senior accountant at a foreign investments uh, banking department in Argentina. And with due respect, he wants me to, uh, oh, oh my God. It's heartbreaking, he says, that my client, Mr. Lawton Robert, and his wife, Mrs. Lawton Catherine. <laughs> okay. We're on board. Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 that disappeared and crashed on the 8th of March 2014, killing everybody on board. May their souls rest in perfect peace. You can read more about the crash here. Do we want... Uh, I am compelled to... <laughs> Dude, my God, this is a new one. This is... At the conclusion of this transaction, if you give me concrete promise that you will carry out this transaction and keep it top secret, then I will initiate this process towards conclusion. I am willing to send you my bank staff ID or my international passport for you to know me better as soon as I get your response. I wait your urgent positive response to proceed with the execution arrangements. 
Whoa! Well, I'm sorry to bother you with that. I'll take that up later. Uh, Jeez. Okay. You know, someone once asked me, why do these people do these things? I mean, what, you know why they do them? Some, you throw out, what, 10 million? And one person actually responds. People respond to this stuff. You gotta wonder how. I mean, I can see maybe earlier with the internet people might, but they do it because it works. Unbelievable. Anyway, so the Europeans were uh, meeting in some kind of security thing, and um, all they could talk about was how scared they are that Donald Trump's going to get reelected, and in fact, they think he is. So these are European heads of state, and uh, it says right here, Dateline Munich, uh, rightly or wrongly, <laughs> the consensus among European diplomats and analysts is that Trump is likely to win a second term. And they're already talking about how the hell they survive that. They uh, say they would anticipate a collapse in, uh, total collapse in trust in American leadership and credibility. Uh, as one guy was quoted as saying, if the United States reelects him, knowing everything about him, that will change everything here. So, and it was put this way by another one. A French analyst said this. Eight years, in other words, if he wins re-election, eight years in political terms is an era. He's saying if this country re-elects Trump, there will be a Trump era in this world. Eight years in political terms is an era. Four years could be said to be an error. So they're thinking, okay, the Americans screwed up. They screwed up. They got to know they screwed up now. Everybody knows they screwed up. We'll give them that. Four years is an error. Eight years is an era. And the guy went on to say, and if he gets eight, it would undermine the reality of American democracy, saying it, it would be toast. If Americans reelect him, that would be a strategic decision on their part. And it's hard to know what Europeans would actually be able to do. So, on election day in November, when we'll all be drinking heavily, scared out of our wits, that will be happening all over the globe. All over the globe. And the world will be 
praying that we set things right and show this was an error. And that's on us. In lieu of an obit, I want to instead talk about something I saw in the style section of the New York Times today. This is normally where they, you know, show you absurd things from the world of fashion and style. But the front page of the style section today had a picture of a man lying on a table dressed in his favorite stuff dead as a doornail. A dead man lying on a table and this was in the style section of the New York Times today. Needless to say it got my attention. So I started to read this and it's It turns out (laughs) that um, the picture of the guy was taken by his family. And all his brothers and sisters and his mom, and they took a family photo. It just happened that he was dead. Now, That might seem outrageous to some of us, but it was the norm uh, ever since photography came into the world, which was what, about 1840 or something. Often the only picture taken of a person was of them dead. They would dress them up because they wanted to remember them. They never had a photographer before. It's an expen- it was expensive. So you would dress the person up and sit him in a chair sometimes or <laughs> pose him. I mean, there's actually a picture uh, in this article of a man. This is from 1845. It's a lovely photo of a, of a man and uh, his wife, and he has his arms around her, and she's staring off into the distance, and he is too. And she's all, I mean, it's a lovely picture of a couple. But it turns out she's dead. So it was not unusual. In fact, I do have a book at home. I've had it for ages. And it horrifies some people, and some are fascinated by it. It's called Sleeping Beauty. And it is a compilation of some of these photos that were taken all the time of dead people, dead babies, whole dead families. There's one in there where there's like a mother, a father, three or four children. They're all laid out in a bed together. (laughs) They're all dead. Um, And this was not unusual. There's pictures of living children posed in their dead parents' laps. 
all of this seems very to us, but it's because people used to be closer to death, right? You died. It was your family who got your body ready. Um, you were laid out in the living room, which was not called the living room. It was called the parlor. You were laid out in the front parlor. Now, sometime around the turn of the century, I, I, I think it was, morticians came into the picture. Also, it says here in the article that, oh, in 1910, Ladies Home Journal said the term parlor was passe. And the term now is the living room. Well, if it be the living room, you ain't putting dead people in it. So what popped up? Funeral parlors. The parlor becomes the living room, and the parlor then becomes a business where you hand your dead one over to professionals. Um, and so that's when death became sort of a taboo. And in our lifetimes, that's what it's been. People don't talk about it. You can't imagine. You just sort of are... We, we, uh, the culture generally um, is finds it a, really a, a, a relatively taboo subject. So now there are people who are f pushing back. Just as, remember, when I was brought into this world, my mom went to a hospital, was totally knocked out, and then I got, you know, birthed. And then when my generation started having babies, they said, you know what, that's nuts. Let's do it like they've done it forever. And then you saw this, this you know, growing movement of natural childbirth, of midwifery, of, of doulas and all of that. So this sort of hospitalized uh, birth process got challenged in our memory and there's now it's perfectly reasonable to have a home birth or to certainly steer clear of hospitals and now there's something coming back called a natural death movement you see it with hospice you see it with pe more and more people die in their own beds in their own homes they don't want to die in a hospital and this, people taking care of their own dead, is just another part of that. The fact that they're photographing, though, I guess this is an... Come on, we take selfies all the time. Uh, these ubiquitous cameras and cell phones. So, of course, um, I can see where <coughs> you would take a picture. It's a little much for me because I have lots of pictures of my loved ones when they're alive. I really don't want to remember them dead. 
but increasingly this is happening. And there are now people called death doulas who will come to your home and help you manage the body. Um, so choosing people are choosing home funerals. They are sending their dead off as their grandparents used to and recording the event as its aftermath and its aftermath with their, with their phones. And with cell phones ever present, of course we're going to start recording things we hadn't done before, death being just one of them. And some of these death photos are showing up now on Facebook because people are posting them. Um, someone said here it can be a little disconcerting to see a photo of a dead person wedged between the latest Trump atrocity and cats who look like Hitler. <laughs> it can be a little bit jarring. So, um, <clears throat> I just want to say I do find the idea of um, taking these things back into our homes, dealing with our dead, ourselves. My mother often tells the story of how her mother had to wash her grandmother's body and dress it and lay it out in their parlor and my my grandmother who did this as a was only like 12 or 13 years old um, but that's what people did when people understood death as a very natural part of of life and I have to tell you something that interests me a lot now and I know as I talk about this that a lot of you are squeamish and tuning out because we are so not comfortable with talking about this stuff. But I am increasingly interested in the uh, green burial uh, movement. Um, and uh, I, am, I think that's what I'm going to do. I like the idea of just being put in the ground with nothing around me other than maybe a shroud and, you know, a tree growing from, you know, I just, I love the idea of sort of that natural way, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, just sort of, I love that. And so I've got to really do my homework to find out how I, um, I do that. The other thing um, about this is... Um, if you know, I, I mean, obviously I'm a Jew, and, and, and the Jewish uh, traditions around death are, are fascinating to me, and I think are wonderful in many ways. But one of the things is, the reason Jews don't show they're dead, we don't have open caskets, we don't, heaven knows, take pictures of dead bodies. Because for Jews, the idea is, 
that to look, to stare at someone who cannot return your gaze is just not right. So we, you can't look. Not because it's unseemly to be dead or there's something horrible about death, but because it's almost disrespectful to the deceased to have people looking at you when you have no ability to return the exchange. Milton, thank you. Milton's written again. I've always thought that those who believe that Trump decided to run as a result of the 2011 Correspondents' Dinner were forgetting an interesting aspect of what happened that weekend. The night after that Correspondents' Dinner, oh, for heaven's sakes, was the big finale of Celebrity Apprentice, the last half hour of which never actually aired because, listen to this, the last half hour of Trump's Celebrity Apprentice finale in 2011 never aired. Why? it was interrupted by breaking news. Breaking news of the raid on bin Laden and the killing of bin Laden, which was ordered, of course, by Barack Obama, who knew it was going to be happening when he was taking down Trump at the dinner the night before. Huh. So Milton says, Milton, you're so smart. Um, he says, I'll always contend that the combination of being humiliated on Saturday night at the correspondence dinner, not just by uh, Trump, not just by Obama, but also I think Seth Meyers was the he went at him too, to be the butt of jokes. Now knowing Donald Trump as we do, one can only imagine the rage. And then the next night with his big finale knocked off the air. So Milton thinks it was the combo. And, and both things, of course, were uh, ordered, I mean, were done uh, by Barack Obama. <laughs> so Milton says, I just think that that latter part of the equation is often not mentioned. I, don't, I didn't even know it. But uh, just as important a factor. That's fascinating. I love that. I love that. I really do. Wow. Isn't that something? I mean, think of, yeah, you know, a, a, a moment, uh, you know, everybody's laughing except Donald Trump and, and look what it, and then the next night, 
we kill bin Laden and that interrupts programming. And Trump is, now that we know of his neediness and his sense of constant grievance, whoa, he would have gone totally ballistic. But ultimately, it was we the people, not me, not you, but we the people, who took that broken, repulsive man and said, yeah, yeah, I think he'd make a great president. And... I think ever since his election, I guess, um, I feel like I've been living in a country I don't know. And, um, and I really still do not know it. And it's a, well, disheartening would be one word, but also there's just a sense of being lost. A sense of not of being lost as much as a sense of loss. I've said in recent years, I feel like I've lost my innocence. I feel like I've lost my sense of what was reality, <laughs> my sense of what my country represented. I feel I've lost so much. I sometimes feel I'm losing my mind. Because that much loss of things that sort of, you know, were girding you throughout life. You know, we all like to think we got some clue about the world that we're living in, how it works. We like to think we have a clue of what other humans value and, and their innate, perhaps, goodness. <laughs> and finding out that you didn't know is a uh, not only humbling but it can make you feel like I've been feeling for the last three years and it ain't good. It can make you feel bewildered, powerless, confused, and lost. And on that upbeat note, ladies and gentlemen, um, that's it for, uh, for this week. Um, I'll see you next week. Uh, and God knows what horrors will, um, will unfold um, in the interim. Whatever they are, we'll talk about them on Monday. See you.
Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.